0: Hello and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, September 26th through Saturday the 28th feature Ricardo Moody directing all Beethoven, including Consecration of the House Overture and Symphonies Numbers 1 and 3, The Eroica. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Symphony No. 1 in C major, a work lasting about 25 minutes. This is a young man's music. As the first symphony by the greatest symphonist who ever lived, one might expect clues of the daring and novelty to come. Since it was written at the turn of the century and premiered in Vienna, the great musical capital, in 1800, one might assume that it is with this work that Beethoven opened a new era in music. But, in fact, This symphony belongs to the 18th, not the 19th century. It honors the tradition of Mozart, dead less than a decade, and Haydn, who had given Beethoven enough lessons to know that his student would soon set out on his own. The first symphony is a conservative work by the least conservative of composers. Just two years later, Beethoven proudly announced that he would follow a new path. Alexander Thayer, who wrote the first significant book on Beethoven, saw 1800 as a turning point in the composer's career. It is the year in which, cutting loose from the pianoforte, he asserted his claims to a position with Mozart and the still-living and productive Haydn in the higher forms of chamber and orchestral compositions, the quartet and the symphony. It was a bold step for a young composer, Beethoven wasn't yet 30, to write his first symphony when Haydn's final work in the form was just five years old and Mozart's Jupiter, a scant 12. But this was perhaps the best and certainly the riskiest way for Beethoven to stake his claim to their territory. Beethoven had moved to Vienna in 1792, the year after Mozart died, and in the famous words of Count Waldstein, he was to receive Mozart's spirit from Haydn's hands. Beethoven learned plenty from the example of Haydn's music, but the actual lessons he had with the master didn't go well. And Beethoven quickly understood that if he was to play a role in this great Viennese tradition, He would have to carve out a place for himself all by himself beethoven began to sketch a symphony in c major in 1795 and he was still struggling with it during a concert tour to prague and berlin the following year but beethoven apparently wasn't ready to reckon with this great form yet and he turned his attention primarily to the piano sonata which became the vehicle for his most advanced ideas in 1799, the year he composed one of his real watershed works, the Pathetique Sonata, Beethoven decisively returned to the idea of writing a symphony. The C major symphony he finished early in 1800 is the first of eight he would compose in 13 years. On April 2, 1800, Beethoven held a concert in Vienna's Burgtheater, the first he would give for his own benefit in this opinionated and difficult music center. In a gesture of savvy public relations, he included a symphony by Mozart and two numbers from Haydn's creation on the program to set the scene for his own music, some of it new, like the Septet, that quickly became one of his most popular pieces, and this first symphony. Sadly, inexplicably, the Viennese critics ignored the performance, but the Leipzig correspondent called it truly the most interesting concert in a long time. Beethoven's first symphony is scored for the orchestra of Haydn and Mozart, including the clarinets that weren't yet a standard feature and written in the conventional four-movement form he would soon transform. Although it's a surprisingly cautious work from a bold and sometimes brazen composer, it's neither faceless nor unaccomplished, and the critics of the time found it neither timid nor derivative. Beethoven begins, slyly, with the kind of cadences that normally end a work, stated in the wrong key, or rather, searching for the right key. Haydn had used a similar trick in his string quartets, but never to open a symphony. Beethoven liked the effect so much that he did something comparable in his next work, The Creatures of Prometheus. The entire movement sparkles with genuine energy and is particularly colored by the brilliant and inventive writing for winds. One critic complained that it sounded more like a wind band than an orchestra. The slow movement is charming and graceful. It is slight as sometimes suggested only by the composer's own later standards. Beethoven calls the next movement a minuet, but both his tempo, allegro, molto e and a very swift metronome marking argue that this is really the first of his true symphonic scherzos. Haydn had begun to write third-movement scherzos in his string quartets, but he didn't transfer that crucial development into his symphonies. The finale, with its humorous, slow introduction, is as playful and spirited as anything in Haydn. It is not yet the heroic or the revolutionary Beethoven, but it proves brilliantly that the student had learned his teacher's lessons well. Program Notes by Philip Hushër on Beethoven's Symphony No. 1. And now on to Beethoven's Symphony No. 3, the Eroica Symphony, a work lasting about 50 minutes. The story of how the Eroica Symphony got its title is nearly as famous as the music itself. We know that Beethoven intended to name his third symphony for Napoleon Bonaparte and his fight against political tyranny, that he tore up the title page in a fit of rage when he learned that Napoleon had appointed himself emperor, and that he opted for the title Sinfonia Eroica, Heroic Symphony, instead. The subtexts, idealism and disillusionment, personal greed and the lust for power, the struggle between art and politics, among others, are intense, and they have come to overshadow one of the most remarkable, even revolutionary, works of art we have. A century after Beethoven Toscanini tried to restore reason, famously brushing aside a hundred years of connotations. Some say it is Napoleon, some Hitler, some Mussolini. For me, it is simply allegro con brio. Beethoven had been contemplating a symphony inspired by General Bonaparte since 1798. Most of the music was composed in the summer of 1803, only months after Beethoven wrote his most revealing non-musical work, The Heiligenstadt Testament, A Painful Confirmation of Worsening Deafness and Thoughts of Suicide. It was one of the lowest points in a life that understood despair only too well. The composition of an important and substantial new symphony was Beethoven's great rallying cry, a heroic act in itself. The first draft was probably completed by November 1803. Beethoven's extensive sketches, nicely preserved and often studied, confirmed that the new symphony gave its composer a lot of trouble. In May 1804, when the news reached Vienna that Napoleon had declared himself emperor, Beethoven felt betrayed. According to the account later written by his student, Ferdinand Ries, when he broke the news to Beethoven, the composer went to the table, took hold of the title page by the top, tore it in two, and threw it to the floor. In fact, although Beethoven had long intended to name the symphony after Bonaparte, he quickly dropped that plan when he learned that Prince Lobkowitz would pay him handsomely for the same honor. And later, after he had ripped up the title page, Beethoven temporarily recanted when he realized that a Bonaparte symphony would be just the thing for his upcoming trip to Paris. In 1806, when it came time to publish the E-flat major symphony, Beethoven suggested Sinfonia Eroica," composed to celebrate the memory of a great man without mentioning Napoleon. Beethoven's last reputed words on the subject, full of the anger and resentment he surely felt, came later, after Napoleon's victory at Jena. "'It's a pity I do not understand the art of war as well as I do the art of music. I would conquer him.'" History doesn't tell us what, if anything, Napoleon thought of Beethoven's music. When Cherubini, whom he did admire, once suggested that Napoleon knew no more about music than he knew of battle— The emperor immediately stripped him of his offices and power, leaving him with virtually no income. The Eroica is perhaps the first great symphony to have captured the romantic imagination. It's not as openly suggestive as the later pastoral with its bird calls and thunderstorm, nor as specific as the ninth with its unmistakable message of hope and freedom— But to the Viennese audience at the first performance on April 7, 1805, Beethoven's vast and powerful first movement and the funeral march that follows must have sounded like nothing else in all music. Never before had symphonic music aspired to these dimensions. We're told that a man in the gallery shouted down, I'll give another Kreutzer if the thing will only stop. Audiences then, just as today, brought certain expectations to the concert hall, and knowing the length of a piece is one of them. But Beethoven's Allegro con Brio was longer and bigger in every sense than any other symphonic movement. The first movement of Mozart's Prague Symphony comes the closest. It's also a question of proportion, and Beethoven's central development section, abounding in some truly monumental statements, is enormous. It is sometimes said that Beethoven was writing without themes at the beginning of the first movement. The comment is not meant disparagingly, but as proof that the essence of Beethoven's language is not melody, but tension and movement. The very opening of the Beethoven consists of no more than two E-flat major chords played forte, followed by the cellos jumping back and forth over the notes of an E-flat triad. The first exceptional event comes when the cellos stumble on C-sharp, a note we never expected to hear, and one that opens unforeseen vistas only seven bars into the piece. From there, Beethoven continues to spread his wings, even settling comfortably in the very remote key of E minor, just moments before he whisks us back to the E-flat major chords with which he began. Beethoven's writing in the most expansive piece he had yet composed is tight and closely unified. Although analysts often point out the unprecedented use of a new theme in the development section, it's not unique, see Mozart's Symphony No. 33, nor is the theme truly new. Ries was perhaps the first person to be misled by the premature entry of the horn four bars before the start of the recapitulation, and he lost Beethoven's respect forever when he rushed up to tell him that the player had come in at the wrong place. It's one of Beethoven's little jokes, all the more effective for being told at a whisper. The coda is as big and important as a movement in itself, but something of this stature is needed to bring us back to earth before we move on. The adagio Is a funeral march of measured solemnity, pushed forward by the low rumble of the basses like the sound of muffled drums. Beethoven raised some eyebrows by placing the funeral music so early in the symphony, but this is music, not biography, and chronology is beside the point. The two interludes are particularly moving. The first, because it casts a sudden ray of sunlight on the grim proceedings. The second, because it carries the single thread of melody into a vast double fugue of almost unseemly magnificence. The music ends with some consolation, but even more grief. Beethoven's funeral music gives way to a brilliant, though often very quiet, scherzo. Just as the prisoners in Fidelio emerge from the dungeon into the blinding daylight, here the modest minuet of Haydn and Mozart has become something truly symphonic in scope. Beethoven's finale is a set of variations on a theme he had used several times before, principally in his ballet The Creatures of Prometheus. This is an unusually complex and multifaceted piece of music. It's not just the conclusion, but the culmination of all that came before. Beethoven begins with a simple, unattached bass line before introducing the theme itself. The variety and range of style are extraordinary, a fugue on the line a virtuoso showpiece for flute, a swinging dance in G minor, an expansive hymn. Beethoven moves from one event to the next, making their connection seem not only obvious, but inevitable. Some of it is splendid solemnity, some high humor, and Beethoven touches on much in between. A magnificent coda, which continues to stake out new territory, even while wrapping things up, ends with bursts of joy from the horns. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Three, the Eroica. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.